Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we're speaking with Lucinda Martin, whom we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast. Last time we spoke, we were covering this uh, incredible Jakob Böhme exhibition you put on. And now you've moved on to a whole new career path, as well as being a specialist in North European pietist movements and the thought of Jakob Böhme in particular. You are now director of the Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica in Amsterdam and Rittman Research Institute. And it is this incredible library and research institution we want to talk about. But before we do that, thanks for coming on the Schwet. Well, thanks for having me, Earl. So, Lucinda, for those who know nothing about the uh, the Bibphil Herm and the Embassy of the Free Mind and many related things, which is all too many people, tell us about this institution that you're now working for and uh, what it is. Well, maybe I should I should first start by explaining that we're actually four different institutions in, in one house. And then maybe I can tell you a bit um, about the beginnings of the library and its history, which uh, the library is the central institution. Um, so it's the, the, the library, uh, the, the Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica, the Library of Hermetic Philosophy. Many people know it as the Rittman Library. But we also have a museum the Embassy of the Free Mind, um, where we hold exhibits and um, try to teach about um, these different hermetic streams of thought. Um, we have a so-called Academy of the Free Mind, where we offer lectures and program seminars for the public. And of course, um, we have the Rittman Research Institute, um, which was um, really the main reason I was hired was to build up this institute to have more conferences, more publications. Um, and we have a lot of plans for the future. Next year, we're going to add a postdoc. We already have two junior researchers alongside myself. Um, we're going to have a fellows program. Um, we just had our first major international conference and others are planned. And we plan also, um, um, we have a full publishing program. So, so lots going on there. Now, all four of these institutions, the museum, the library, the research institute, and the academy are themselves within um, a famous building in Amsterdam, the so-called House with the Heads. It's a large, beautiful canal house from the 17th century. The facade is adorned with the heads of six Greek gods. Um, and this is a very, you know, it's a monument. It's a listed monument and a very famous building. And if you go on a canal tour in Amsterdam, they always include our house, although they tell um, really made up stories about it, that the six figures on the on the facade might be six thieves who tried to break into the house. Uh, but that's not true. It's uh, it's all about the, the Renaissance interest in looking back to the past and, and capturing um, the wisdom of antiquity. So many people come to our house just to see the house itself. So it, it's Kaiserschacht right in the central canal ring of, of Amsterdam. Like, this is old Amsterdam at its finest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're on Kaisergracht, and we were um, until 2017 in the Blomstraat. Yeah. Our library goes back to actually the year 1957, when the young Joost Rittman was given as a gift from his mother, Jakob Burma's Aurora. Um, those who know about Burma know that he was published first uh, in Dutch before he was published uh, in, in English or German. And one of these early Dutch editions, um, it's actually the, the Forrester edition from um, 
from from uh, let's see, I think it's 1687. Um, I have to check that. Um, at any rate, it's the one with the very beautiful illustrations by Jan Like, and where Burma actually is, you know, you see Burma working in his shoe shop, and he turns his back on shoemaking to to write. So Joost Ritman received that book as a young man, and it really uh, unleashed something in him. He was totally fascinated. Um, by this idea that that science and spirituality don't have to be opposites, that they can be two sides of one coin. And he began collecting other books in that vein. And at that time, it was easy to do. At that time, no one, you know, really thought these books were special, or very few people did. So he quickly built up uh, an impressive collection. And in the in the early 80s, he then opened his collection to scholars who sought him out. In 83, a, a curator was added. And soon thereafter, Carlos Gilly started working there. Many know the great Carlos Gilly, a researcher of Rosicrucianism and early modern dissidents. And Carlos, at the age of 85, still, by the way, is doing research for us as a senior researcher. And then for the following 30 years, the library offered um, conferences and exhibitions, you know, all over the world in cooperation with the most important libraries in the world, whether it's Wolfenbüttel or St. Petersburg, the La Vinciana. And things went on that way until 2012, when Joost Rittman signed um, his library over to a foundation to make the, the work more public. And the Rittman family purchased the house with the heads as a new uh, home for these new activities or expanded activities. Um, so the museum has only existed since 2017. So we're still very much in a, in a building phase and the house with the heads is still being renovated. The top two floors are, are not currently in use, but we hope they will be by next year for seminars and things like that. So that's, that maybe gives you a little, a little history of the library. Yeah. So it's one of these kind of um, great private libraries that, ended up becoming open to the public and really open to the public. Like I remember going to the Ritman library in the you know, sort of early 2000s and you just could rock up and just say, I'd like to read some stuff. And they were like, here you go. Here's a card in you go. And you're suddenly surrounded by this unbelievable open stack collection of work on Western esoteric stuff. I would say leading toward renaissance and, and and thereafter but with some really good stuff on you know ancient hermetica and stuff like that as well and early maybe early... i can say a few words hmm? yeah please t tell us about the the kind of holdings how many books you have how would you describe this collection to a scholar who's thinking of maybe doing what i did and rocking up and having a poke around so we have about twenty eight thousand books uh, that includes the entire collection about 8,000 of those are the rare old books and manuscripts. We have 70 incunables, about 700 post-1550 manuscripts, and 25 manuscripts written before 1550. Um, and then the remaining are post-1800. Now, um, most of our work is indeed what is often called Western esotericism. Our collection really begins with the Corpus Hermeticum, and um, early Platonic writings. Um, and our collecting areas include um, the Hermetica, both Jewish and Christian Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, magic, um, fraternal organizations like Rosicrucians and Freemasons, 
And our largest collecting area is simply mysticism. However you define that, it's always fun to try to define mysticism. Right. I, I should mention, Earl, that in the 28,000 books, so in the in the um, secondary literature, we try to cover the entire field. So including parallel phenomenon in other cultures and and more modern phenomenon. We also do have some some interesting um, Sufi and Arabic manuscripts and things like that that we consider to be parallel phenomenon or related phenomenon indeed, since we know that that these streams of thought do have some roots, you know, in ancient Greece and in Egypt and, and even in Persia. But as I say, the focus is really on the Renaissance in Europe and and uh, let's say it's it's outgrowths. So as a little technical note, what is an incunable or an incunabulum? So those are simply books that are that were produced before 1500. Um, and not not surprisingly, we have several copies of the Corpus Hermeticum that fit that fit that description. And um, actually, we have over 50 copies of the Corpus Hermeticum printed before 1800. <laughs> so it's a very important piece for us. And indeed, um, about 25 years ago, we had a, a groundbreaking um, exhibition together with the uh, La Valenciana Library in, in uh, Florence. And now we are planning 25 years later to do another exhibition with the La Valenciana. And we want to do a large conference uh, connected to that to look at the discoveries and the new insights that have been made since that last exhibition and conference. So it's, um, you know, some very interesting things coming up. Is that going to be centered on the Corpus Hermeticum in some way? Is that yes, the theme? Uh, because our, our idea is to bring together all of the European translations of the Corpus Hermeticum. For example, Carlos Gilly is right now working on um, a very interesting piece about a Spanish translation that was done before Ficino. So <gasps> that's, that's going to be very interesting. And our idea in this exhibition is to show that, you know, the French and the Italian and the German and the Dutch and to bring them all together. But not only the Corpus Hermeticum, we also want to look at other, you know, related texts and, and phenomena. Nice. Now we know a little bit about the library, which is sort of the heart of what you guys do. And I guess we're getting a picture of this this place as an institution, a sort of hard to pigeonhole, but very interesting hub for knowledge dissemination, research, conversations, conversations with old books, but also conversations between scholars and people who are interested. You just had a, a few events at, what what is the most general way to refer to it? Is it Biblioteca Philosophica Hermetica, because Embassy of the Free Mind seems to be more prominent sort of online these days. Yeah, because the mu the museum is, um, I would say, kind of the public face of the institutions because it's, it's you know, it's the museum and it's um, where a lot of things involving the public happen. But of course, the, the Biblioteca Philosophica Hermetica is, is still very much present. We have the problem that the public doesn't understand what that name means. <laughs> So sometimes it's easier to say Ritman Library. Yeah. Um, but indeed, the library is the central institution because all of the exhibitions and all of the programs are based on that collection. Right. Um, and I think, um, you know, the public, of course, knows the, the Ritman Research Institute less. But I think in the research community, it's it's quite well known. Yeah. We don't know anything about the museum. It's like, come on, the Bibphil Herm. The Ritman Library recently hosted a couple 
interesting events. So tell us about those just to get a picture of kind of what's going on nowadays. So we just we just held a large international exhibition on Amsterdam as a haven for religious refugees in the early modern period. Um, for those who don't know, um, many <clears throat> spiritualist mystics, but also Huguenots, Jews, there were, there were lots of people uh, not being tolerated because of their beliefs in their homelands. Um, and they found refuge in, in the Netherlands, um, particularly in the 17th century, but really in the entire early modern period. And um, it's particularly in interesting for us because um, in the 17th century, the owners of our house, the de Gea family, had themselves been religious refugees from Belgium. And they became, um, this very wealthy family, became patrons of all kinds of religious refugees. Uh, most prominently, Jan Comenius. Comenius lived in our house for a period in the 17th century. Wow. Um, and his patron was Louis de Gea. And if you look in, in um, you know, the gigantic tome of Comenius' opera, you will see that it was published by de Gea. It, but of course, it's not only Comenius, also um, dissidents like Friedrich Bleckling or Christian Hoberg. If you read in um, the dedications to their books, you find out that they were supported by the de Gea family. And indeed, de Gea had a library of dissident literature, and many of the same books that he had are in our library today. Wow. <laughs> so um, this is this is a very nice resonance for us. And um Actually, in 2020, let's see what we have now, 22. So at the end of 23, um, we will be having an exhibition on the 400th anniversary of our house. Um, the exhibition will cover the entire history of the house, but we'll focus especially on this period when the house um, served as really a cultural center. I mean, people like Descartes uh, were coming and going Um you know, it was a center for art. The Tegea family owned paintings by by Rembrandt and Jordans. And, and as I say, these, these thinkers, these philosophers and dissidents um, were coming and going in the house. So this will be the focus of the exhibition. And so this um, was one step toward preparing for that. Um, it's at the same time preparing for, for a big exhibition we want to have in 25 which is going to be the 750th anniversary of the city of Amsterdam. Um, and that exhibition will be called The Soul of Amsterdam and will focus on banned books and so forth and so on. So this is a step in that direction. And we had um, we had some, some really impressive scholars coming from all over um, Europe um, and, in fact, connecting by Zoom from Canada and Australia and other places to deliver papers, and these papers will result in proceedings at some point. Brilliant. So that that links into the, the kind of publishing efforts you've been talking about. And for those who are interested in what I would describe as really high-end um, publications on the Hermetic tradition, let's say, the humanist Renaissance, learned Hermetic tradition especially, will be greatly rewarded by checking out the kinds of publications that have come out of the Ripman Library over the years. That these, Even just the um, exhibition catalogs tend to be super classy coffee table books that, you, that are deeply rewarding uh, to read, have superb illustrations. Lovers mm -hmm. of the Warburg Institute will, will definitely find a, a resonance there, this, this great love of imagery and iconography and um, that whole kind of early printed work emblem book type world. Maybe I can fact. say a few words about the discipline 
of hermetic philosophy and and our publishing program. Please. I do think that that our collection helped establish the field as a field so that um, you know when you know people started to to think about establishing chairs for the study of hermetic philosophy they indeed looked at our collecting areas uh, as as a basis and and as you pointed out we were early um, with with many of our publications you know for into modern languages in particular um, the translations for example of the Corpus Hermeticum into Dutch by Rolf van den Blak and and Gilles uh, Quispel. And if you've seen Wouter Hanegraaf's new book, on the very first page, he talks about how his interest in hermetic philosophy was first stimulated by his visits um, to our library, um, and and in particular by that translation. Um, And of course, over the years, there were many translations. Um, There were these wonderful catalogs that you mentioned, many, many wonderful studies, um, and many of them were published in-house by our in-house press, De Pelican. Um, we're um, at a stage now when we're kind of, of reevaluating and looking at how we're going to be publishing in the future because, you know, publishing has changed a lot in the last 40 years. Um, and what we probably will be doing is using De Pelican to continue to print um, these wonderful catalogs. We're also starting a new um, series of introductory texts, small little pocket-sized books for for the public. The first one will be about the history of the House with the Heads. But we'll also be doing conference proceedings and more scholarly things. And we're kind of considering what we're going to do with that. And it it may end up being some combination of, of digital publishing to get things out. It may be an imprint with another press. It may be journal articles. We're exploring a lot of different options uh, because we want people to, to, you know, to have access to the, to the publishing we do. This bespeaks, this, this sort of quest for how best to do it bespeaks the very interesting position that the Ripman Library has because on the one hand, it's kind of like a, a de-esotericization project in a way. It's taking a lot of stuff that has been uh, forgotten or considered recondite or considered, let's say, not mainstream or or even um, the opposite of whatever mainstream is, and especially in the sort of post-Enlightenment period, the dustbin of history, that whole narrative. But taking that stuff seriously, but also publicizing it and really getting it out there to a culture which seemingly is increasingly uh, ready to uh, re-engage with a lot of this stuff um, in a in a sort of historicized, intelligent way, right? And so, the fact that there's now a a museum, like an actual public-facing space where you can wander in, and you don't actually have to be someone who can um, you know decipher weird languages in old printed works or manuscripts, you can just be so. It's like, what the heck's this place? I'm just going to wander in and have a look and there's even like a cafe, you know, this is really significant, I think, because, well, the the Ripon Library has been a kind of hub for, as you say, the um, establishment of the chair in Hermetic Philosophy at Amsterdam, but also just more a kind of intellectual home for large international networks of scholars who are working on adjacent areas and sort of collaboratively building a field that we know and love as Western esotericism studies and similar stuff, you know, the, the, the academic study of alchemy, the academic study of other occult sciences broadening out into uh, other fields of intellectual history. 
But once you've established that field, it starts to seep into the public at large and get out of academia a little bit. And so it makes sense that the Ripon Library should also be kind of moving in that direction. Well, in fact, it's uh, it's something that we deal with every day, and, and it's a challenge. Um, we want, on the one hand, to build on the, the research um, that we've done in the past, the very deep research, and continue to to build on that, to reach out and you know, produce more and better and bigger research. Um, at the same time, we want to reach the general public. And that's often quite difficult. We we deal with complex subjects, often in, in older languages or other languages that people don't know. Often what people know about our subject matter um, comes from very superficial sources. You know, it might be the the local pop section at a bookstore where, you know, they read about crystals or uh, astrology or something, and they they have no idea about the, you know, the origins of these discourses and the role they played in their time. And it's quite a delicate balance, actually, to, on the one hand, teach the public, you know, about these things in a in a, in a solid way, you know, we don't want to get to what I call touchy-feely. We don't want to be too touchy-feely. We want to be serious. On the other hand, you want to be interesting for people. Uh, and, and it is a bit tricky. People don't always like to be dis, disenchanted, if you will. <laughs> right. But <laughs> You know, they, they, like to, they like to keep believing in, you know, the power of alchemy or the power of astrology or whatever, and they don't necessarily want to know what it meant in, in the 16th century or how it arose or, you know, these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but what I can say about that is we, um, we offer rare book tours. And I, I do go into the de- into detail about these things and show people the actual books. And I think when people see the original objects, that is really the magic for people, mm. you know, um, much more so than just having a kind of a dry historical explanation. Um, so um, that, that I think is the balance um, th- to somehow make it really interesting for people and, and still, and still correct. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I feel you like, I think a lot of people who are interested in Western esotericism, the history of Western esotericism, not as practitioners or as some kind of practitioner or believer or, you know, someone who's, however you want to define it, engaged with the material in a way that isn't from a scholarly distance, but is somehow involved. All of those people, it seems to me, if you can get them to leave the echo chamber of just kind of wishy-washy nonsense that you might find at large in the mind, body, spirit section of, of a given bookstore, maybe with some historical gems hiding among the nonsense, but how do you tell the nonsense from the historical gems, you know? Um, it's, it's way more magical and way more um, enchanting when you get historicized, mm. when you get historical, when you, when you look at how these ideas develop in, in their natural habitat rather than as uh, existing in some kind of fantasy mm. land. You know, I will say that this challenge is actually the same challenge that every museum faces to get people to go beneath the surface and to a deeper level. Um, I think the particular challenge of our area is that people somehow feel if they've if they've made a spiritual connection, that that makes them experts. Um, so sometimes it's it's about getting people to go beyond what they already know or, and, and think. And most people, I think, uh, turn out to be open to that and, and, and surprised when they find out about the deeper history. So do you have um, initiates coming in and being like, you fools, 
you don't understand what you have here. I'm here to tell you about it. Um, well, let's see. I've I've been told that I will burn in hell for falsifying Jacob Burma. Okay. Okay. By, <laughs> and, by some um, kind of neo-Burmian Christian who's like understands the true depths of Burma's revelation, that sort of thing? I, I suppose so. Right. I suppose so. Because because I talked about um, how Burma probably read certain texts and had exchange with certain others. And for some people, I suppose he's he's a prophet who didn't need to have exchange with others. Right. And my, my response to that would be that, you know, having an intellectual exchange with others does not in any way take away from the spiritual side of what he had to say or what any of our authors have to say. So I actually don't think that the one viewpoint excludes the other, but I think for some people, um, maybe it can. I think that- I've also had people come in and just be surprised to not have their expectations uh, met, um, although that's very much the minority. Um, but I did I did have somebody come in once and ask to see an old copy of the Corpus Hermeticum, and I showed them a copy from 1500, and she said, well, but I wanted to see the real one. And I said, well, this is real. This is a 500-year-old book. Um, um, and she showed me a picture on the internet of what she wanted to see, and it was a different, it was, you know, on vellum and with, with initials. And actually, we do have copies like that on vellum with illuminated initials, but but in storage. Um, and, and so and I anyway, explained that to her. And yeah. um, so the copy I showed her did not have the same magic right. because of that. Yeah. Yeah. What you should have said is, look, the original is is engraved on a giant uh, emerald <laughs> and is it's like an emerald stele sitting in the sands of Egypt between the paws of the Sphinx. And if, if you want to see that, you actually have to go to Cairo, go out to the Giza Plateau and start digging because that's where the Hermes Trismegistus has truly engraved his immemorial wisdom. Um, Lucinda, there is obviously a lot afoot at the Ritman Library. Lots of stuff for people to check out. We shall, of course, link to the copious web resources surrounding the Embassy of the Free Mind, the Ritman Library, etc., for people to kind of click on and have a have a gander. But there is something we should definitely talk about, which is that this extraordinary library stroke institution, which started out as just one man's kind of pet collecting project, has now entered into the roles of UNESCO as a kind of cultural treasure. So tell us about that. Yeah, so um, just um, recently, um, the Netherlands started having its own register under the UNESCO umbrella. So it's the Dutch Memory of the World Register. And um, I I wrote an application for that. And you more or less have to argue about the contribution to, to Dutch heritage. Well, the Dutch see themselves very much as the protectors of free speech and religion, which they, of course, have been historically which is how, you know, the roots of our collection, <laughs> that's that's where the roots are. But above and beyond that, I argued that the Dutch actually absorbed many of the discourses from the refugees that they protected, from the books that, that came to be printed there because they couldn't be printed other uh, in other places. Um, so, for example, when you have, you know, these radicals like Jakob Burma or Gichtel talking about how we all have male and female essences within us, you know, this uh, this contributes directly, I think, to the Dutch tolerance for gender flexibility. 
or when our authors talk about how everything is connected and everything is an outflowing of the divine, therefore we should not exploit the earth but care for it. I think that this feeds directly into Dutch interest in in ecology. And you can follow a number of progressive uh, discourses, I think, in the Netherlands and, and, and even in our world in general. So human rights discourses back to these dissident authors who were long label, labeled superstitious. Mm. Now, that's not to, uh, you know, say that that there were no dark alleys within hermetic discourses or that there's nothing negative there. Um, there certainly is. But but that's not the point of UNESCO. The point of UNESCO is to highlight, you know, the progressive parts. And interestingly, uh, Jan Komenius, who found a home in our house, has been called the spiritual ancestor of UNESCO. In his time, Komenius suggested something that he called a circle of light, which is believed to be one of the forerunners of UNESCO. Um, so it's it's very, very fitting that our library was was awarded this status for its contribution to, to D- Dutch culture. Um, and um, we've already been encouraged in, in two years' time when we become eligible to apply at the world level um, to do so. So... I have that already in in my plans. <laughs> well, congratulations on becoming a kind of, uh, I guess you'd say, living cultural treasure or whatever. However, you define a, a, a active library that has become officially recognized as a you know, profoundly important cultural institution of of the country. And good luck on taking the world stage by storm. I really like this kind of initiative. It goes back to Comenius. We can also maybe argue that uh, what Nikolai Rurik was trying to do in the 20th century of creating this sort of respect for cultural institutions and sites and books and, and objects of kind of profound human importance, regardless of warfare, regardless of economic interests, creating these sort of safe zones where stuff didn't get blown up and trashed because it's important to humanity is another part of the same uh, initiative and also stems from a Western esoteric tradition. So you can you could maybe make a, a strong case for Western esotericism as part of the story of how this um this discourse of cultural treasures kind of has manifested itself and now it exists on an institutional level, which I think is can't be a bad thing. Well my 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 personal um feeling, uh theory I'll say is that in the early modern period these these discourses about everything being connected in some way helped people who were dealing with a world that was fracturing. You know, we have um, all of these new scientific discoveries. The old biblical worldview is, is being shattered. You know, there are new new people, new continents, new languages. You know, people can see the surface of the moon and they can see tiny little creatures under a microscope. And, you know, the world is just blowing up. Yeah, and, and, I think, and it's not at the center of the universe anymore. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, you have... You have um, People like Martin Luther um, saying, no, that doesn't fit with the Bible. It can't be correct because they're too invested in the old ways or they're simply too fearful of, of change. But then you have people like Jakob Burma who say, well, I'm not one who measures the stars. That's how he says it. But I respect those who do. And he says, and if that knowledge doesn't seem to fit with what we thought before based on the Bible, it just means we haven't understood things correctly. You know, he wanted to bring all these systems together and he wanted to bring all the people together. So, um, 
you know, he was a bit shocked to find out that there were what he calls the people of a far island, the, the you know, uh, Native American Indians who didn't know about Christianity. But he says they must also be part of a divine plan. And because they have a conscience, they also have a divine light within. So, you know, he's trying to he's using these these discourses to really find a way to cope, to find a way to cope with with change and difference. And I think that that's what these discourses have have done for a long time. Well, that's a very wonderful message maybe to finish on because it sums up a little bit about the Ripon Library. It sums up a little bit about the spirit of Amsterdam in history, right? As a place where, yeah, go ahead, come, do your thing. We're cool about it. And maybe sums up something important about Western esotericism as a huge broad-scale culture, but one in which there have been these these windows or doors opened on difference and on accommodation and dialogue in ways that they perhaps weren't in the more ironclad uh, orthodoxies that have often taken center stage in the history of Europe and of the world. Lucinda Martin, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for telling us about what you're up to and the library and institution at which you found yourself, director, and stay esoteric. Thanks for having me, and um, I welcome you and and all your listeners to tune in on the web to our programs, and uh, whenever you're able, come visit us in Amsterdam. 